Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. On today's episode, we're going to learn about the movie 12 Years a Slave. And right now, I need to let you know that we'll be talking about some very serious subject matter, including racism, rape, and slavery. So consider this your parental advisory before listening to this episode. Now, if you haven't seen the movie, 12 Years a Slave was released in 2013, and it tells the story of a man named Solomon Northup who was kidnapped and sold to slave owners in the southern United States in the mid-1800s. To help us separate fact from fiction, I'm joined by Professor Greg Jackson from Utah Valley University and host of the extremely popular podcast called History That Doesn't Suck. Before we chat with Greg, though, Let's set up our game, True Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here is how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, Solomon was kidnapped from New York and taken to Louisiana where he was sold as a slave. Number two, the character of Patsy in the movie was based on very real events. Number three, Bass helped Solomon gain his freedom by writing a letter to Solomon's friends in the north. Got him? Okay, now, as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and then by a simple process of elimination, you'll know which one is the lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to get Greg on the line to chat about the movie... 12 Years a Slave. And before diving into some details, even though I never got the sense from the movie that it changed any of the names or places or anything like that, I also know a lot of times movies do that sort of thing. So let's start with the who, when, and where in the movie. First, there's the who. The main character in the movie, of course, is Solomon Northup. He's played by Chuatel Ejiofor. If I pronounced that correctly, I had to look that one up. <laughs> yeah, I'm impressed. <laughs> and uh, we find out pretty quickly that Solomon is a very accomplished violinist. And then there's his wife, Anne, and his two children, Margaret and Alonzo. As for when and where, the only bit of text that we see in the movie is the beginning of where it tells us the year is 1841, and it's in Saratoga, New York. Of course, the movie also makes it clear that that's where Solomon is from, but it's not necessarily where he spent his years as a slave. In fact, I don't even remember the movie ever mentioning in any of the dialogue or anything. I was listening for it, and I don't remember him them saying, this is actually where we're at. It really only just mentioned it as the South. So how well did the movie do capturing the overall essence of the true events? The overall essence, that was quite good. Uh, In fact, I'm going to say that's the movie's greatest strength. There are definitely some liberties taken. And, you know, that's going to happen. I I don't like to be, (laughs) I don't like to be the historian who just slams a movie. Um, I had one one, uh, colleague when I was, uh, teaching part-time at uh, Westminster College in Salt Lake, who used to say historians are just the worst crowd of people to ever take to the movies, right? Just no ability to enjoy a film. Uh, so I, I, <laughs> I kind of always never want to be that guy. 
So I guess all I'm saying is I appreciate that some of the liberties that are taken are because it's really hard to tell, you know, an entire autobiography in a two hour film. It's on a screen, you know, the, the medium can mess some things up, but the overall essence is really quite good. We'll get into some of the specifics and some of the things that made me do my historian cringe of, oh, that's not quite right. But, you know, if I were to give it a grade to it, right, put on my professor cap here, I'd give it, it's either a really strong B plus or, you know, maybe even an A minus. Really quite well done in terms of the overall essence. That's really good. And I, I like the way you phrased that. I've had some uh, historians come on the show and they'd be like, I have to take the day off <laughs> when I go see a movie. It's art. And unfortunately, I'll add this caveat, it's really unfortunate that I don't think we do good enough of a job reminding ourselves in the public sphere or, or even you know, training people in school to remember when it comes out of Hollywood, we're enjoying art. Just like I'm not going to look at a painting and think, wow, this is a photo from a historical event, right? It's interpretation and it's often altered a bit to speak to present realities. So anyhow, I like to keep all those things in mind and just enjoy it for what it is. Sure. That makes sense. Now, according to the movie, Solomon Northup is hired by two men named Mr. Brown and Mr. Hamilton. They say they run a circus and they hire him to go to Washington where he's going to play the violin for their show or something like a circus. When he gets there, Mr. Brown and Mr. Hamilton treat Solomon to an elegant dinner, plenty of alcohol. Solomon drinks a little bit too much, passes out. And then when he wakes up, He's in chains. And then his captors show up. The captors that show up aren't Mr. Brown and Mr. Hamilton anymore. It's someone else. And they try to convince Solomon that he's not a free man. They beat him as they try to get Solomon to admit that he's a runaway slave from Georgia. Of course, Solomon doesn't want to admit this because he's not. Right. It's not true. It's not true, right? Yeah. (laughs) But he doesn't have any of the paperwork. They stole paperwork that he must have had on him. He, you know, he's reaching into his pockets trying to find the paperwork to prove otherwise, and he doesn't have that. So the men take him and a bunch of others that we can only assume have gone through the same sort of thing. They're taken on a riverboat somewhere. This is leading back to what I mentioned earlier. It doesn't really tell us exactly where they're headed, but the impression that I got was essentially they were. that was why he was going from New York to Washington was because it was easier somehow for the kidnappers to take them from Washington, I'm assuming, maybe on the Potomac, down the East Coast to the southern United States. I'm just assuming that from the geography rather than something that the movie mentioned. But how well did the movie do showing how Solomon was kidnapped and then sold into slavery? I was really pleased with this. Now, we are going to talk about some liberties here because there were definitely some taking. But again, to that idea of the essence, the essence was all right. They did trick him out of New York because, of course, New York is a free state and it's a lot harder for them to capture him there. And, you know, basically, I mean, there's no two ways about it. This was human trafficking. That's what was going on. And the simple fact of the matter is that with slavery being permitted in the, the southern states at this point, you know, it was legal to human traffic. I think that's a good way to try and convey that in 21st century terms. So he being a free man, he's born free. Uh, His father had been a slave, I believe in Rhode Island, but Solomon himself was born free, living this this life as a free man in the state of New York. You can kind of see how removed he even was 
not to say he's not aware of slavery. Of course he is, right? And he, he undoubtedly, even though it's not uh, discussed in his autobiography, he undoubtedly faced racism in the North at various times. But he's far more trusting than he should be. It doesn't occur to him that they would be doing something so mischievous. So they actually go out of their way to really make sure that he trusts them. They actually procure his free papers. He didn't have any. It wasn't a huge need in, in his mind. He just never bothered to get them, though you know that's something that he could have done earlier in his life. So all the more reason, I mean, think about how nefarious this really is, that they, they took him explicitly to get his free papers before they take him to Washington, D.C. Wow. Wow, that's messed up. Yeah, it's pretty messed up. I just assumed that he had them because, I mean, unfortunately, in that time that he would have had them. Yeah, no, it it wasn't something that he had ever bothered to do previously. It's because, you know, all the way up in the state of New York and in a world without airplanes, you know, sure, you've got trains, but the road system's not incredibly robust. It's not like you can move across the country that swiftly. So this is what, what I mean by I'm, I have no doubt that as a black American, he had to have experiences with racism and slavery certainly had to cross his mind, though none of that's in the autobiography, right? That's just not part of the scope. But it clearly wasn't present enough in his mind that he ever bothered to get papers previously. So they get him down to DC and yes, they wine and dine him. One of my issues though with the film, and I'm sure again, this was a, a matter of trying to explain things very quickly, is that they did depict him as being drunk. And that just simply was not accurate. In fact, Solomon in his autobiography, if you don't mind me even quoting, in, in my edition, this is from page 13. He says, quote, I did not become intoxicated as may be inferred from what subsequently occurred. Towards evening and soon after partaking of one of these potations, I began to experience most unpleasant sensations. I felt extremely ill. My head commenced aching, a dull, heavy pain, inexpressibly disagreeable. So they drugged him. He wasn't drunk, essentially, is what it sounds like. Yeah. So you know, not that the film held back by any means on the evils of slavery and the human trafficking that was involved in the interstate slave trade. But in some ways, it's even worse <laughs> on this particular thing because they're just trying to move so quickly, right? I mean, they took him to get free papers just to trick him all the more to you know really ingratiate and, and build trust. And then they didn't just get him slammed. You know, They didn't lean on some weakness that he might have for alcohol. That's, that's not Solomon. This is a pretty sober dude. They drugged him. So yeah, it's, it's actually kind of worse, I guess I, I would say now the, the beating that happens in the cell, I mean, they, they take words straight out of the autobiography. So again, a lot of this is, is done quite well, but then they do, they do move quickly. We see them load Solomon and other slaves onto a boat and then he kind of whisks off on a brig. And in reality, there were ferries involved. There were carriages involved often being moved at night because even though they're in the South, what they're doing is shady. Uh, so they pass through Fredericksburg. Uh, Virginia, they passed through Richmond. You know, these are major cities. And, you know, he, he's with a large group of people. At one point, he's asked by someone involved in, in their movement. I can't recall his exact name, but he's asked where he's from. And he says New York. And shock registers on this man's face, who clearly doesn't know that Solomon has been illegally kidnapped. Then Solomon gets the look from one of his, uh, his captors, James Birch. And he he can read it. Solomon's a very intelligent man. He could tell, oh, I need to dial this back real quick or I'm going to be in trouble. So he starts making it sound like he's just traveled to New York 
And after that, Birch says, you ever say you're from New York again, I'm going to kill you. Oh, wow. When I was watching the movie, the impression that I got was when Solomon was on the boat, that his situation was not unique with that, that everybody on the boat was kidnapped and trafficked essentially from Northern states and and sold into slavery in the South. But it sounds like if that person was surprised that he was from New York, that that wasn't necessarily the case for everybody. Not for everyone. That wasn't the experience for everybody being transported with Solomon, but Solomon's experience was certainly not a complete abnormality. There were others like him who were kidnapped and he had heard stories of this, you know, almost the impression I get as I read his autobiography, he mentions as he's waking up in the cell, starting to think, wait, have I been kidnapped? Am I being taken into slavery? And it's clear that he'd heard these stories, but it was almost like this, oh, you know, that, but that'll never happen to me sort of, sort of thing. Like, you know, when people get lazy about wearing a seatbelt, just thinking, yeah, well, I mean, like I'm going to get in an accident, right? And then, you know, these things uh, happen. So similarly, Solomon He's not alone. In fact, Frederick Douglass, who wrote three autobiographies over the course of his life, he doesn't give too many details. He doesn't, as I recall, cite a specific person, but he mentions that this practice existed. And we have no way of even knowing how many free black Northerners were kidnapped and taken uh, to the South as slaves, but it definitely happened. The first person after Solomon is sold in the movie He sold to Benedict Cumberbatch's character, someone named Mr. Ford. And we see him purchase Solomon and a mother named Eliza for a total of $1,700. I think it was $1,000 for Solomon and $700 for Eliza. And this is, it's just, it's a gut wrenching scene. The woman is torn. She has two children and she's just crying over the loss of her children that they won't include them, right? So they have to separate them. Oh, and I forgot to mention that Solomon is forced to go by the name Platt in order to try to cover up that he was, in fact, a free man. The overall sense that I got from Benedict Cumberbatch's character, Mr. Ford, in the movie was that he wasn't really as mean as some of the others around. Uh, He even tries to purchase the children so that they can stay together with, with Eliza. But... Then we kind of get this idea that there was a scene where Solomon's talking with Eliza and and he's like, oh, Mr. Ford is, is treating us differently. You know, but then Eliza has to remind Solomon that he might be a little bit better, but he still bought us. We're still slaves and we should not be slaves. So it's kind of a, a two-part question here. But first, uh, were Mr. Ford and Eliza based on real people? And then was there a time when Solomon started to feel almost appreciative for Mr. Ford before Eliza gave him a reality check? Sure. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and take that question in its two parts. So first off, yes, Mr. Ford and Eliza, these were very real people. And again, in the large essence of the film, a lot of things do stick with the timeline and, and things that transpired. To touch on that gut-wrenching scene, I mean, I cried the first time I saw that. I, I'm sure a lot of people do. It's actually, uh, and they do this throughout the movie. Again, I'm, I'm sure it's something that many a filmmaker feels pressed to doing. They truncated what happened into one scene when it was really dragged out. 
in reality when they're being sold, and we're in uh, Louisiana at this point, when they're being sold, Randall, who is Eliza's older son, he's already gone. He'd been sold that morning. And uh, I mean, uh, it's it's hard to read, uh, Dan. Uh, as he's being sold away from his mother that morning to a uh, planter from, I believe, uh, Baton Rouge, he turns to his mom and assures her that he will be a good boy and uh, to not cry and it's going to be okay. And with that, he disappears from her life. And, you know, as Solomon says, you know, I, I have no idea what happened to him. That's it. There's no communication. It's Never see him again. Gone. Yeah. Wow. So then we get to the afternoon and now Mr. Ford shows up. So her, you know, Eliza's son was not even a factor in this. And then Mr. Ford, he tries to keep them together. He offers to buy the daughter, although Solomon writes that Mr. Ford stated, I have zero purpose in, in buying the, the daughter. She, I, I don't have any role she can serve you know, economically, but I don't want to separate a mother and a daughter. I'm happy to pay you fair you know, market value, essentially. I know these are very uncomfortable terms as we're discussing human beings for us in the 21st century, but these are the realities. And so he, he really tries to buy the daughter. I think the film skips a little bit on this. It, it doesn't quite play. It, it plays down, if anything, the extent to which Mr. Ford really tried to keep this family together. Uh, and Mr. Freeman, the very ironically named slave dealer here, Mr. Freeman makes it very clear that he has no interest in selling. In fact, um, if I can just go ahead and quote Solomon once more, uh, he says, Mr. The man, who, Mr. Ford, he hasn't introduced his name yet in, in the autobiography, but the man remarked he was not in need of one so young that it would be of no profit to him. But since the mother was so fond of her, rather than see them separated, he would pay a reasonable price. But to this humane proposal, Freeman was entirely deaf. He would not sell her then or on any account, whatever. And the reason for this, Dan, is one of the truly, I mean, slavery is low already, but there are, there are even lower lows within that system than you know, some other things. Uh, she's going to be basically forced to be a prostitute. If we were to keep reading, Solomon goes on to uh, explain how Mr. Freeman uh, notes how beautiful the girl is and that that's why he has no interest in selling her. He's not going to sell her for years, that this little girl will grow up to be very attractive. And there was a term for this in the enslavement system. These, these women, these girls often, you know, they were known as fancy girls. I mean, basically, there's just no two ways about it. Freeman was keeping her to sell her as a, a sex slave at some point. Wow. Just when he thought it couldn't get worse. Yeah. And so yeah, Mr. Ford uh, does purchase Eliza. Basically, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to make any sorts of, of excuses, but I'm trying to bring us into this, the reality, the gritty, ugly reality of this, of this economic system. Uh, if he doesn't buy Eliza, it's not going to help keep that family together. E- Eliza was going to be sold that day regardless of anything Mr. Ford did. And that and her daughter was going to be kept regardless of anything Mr. Ford could do. So it it's really ugly. All right. So they are real people. Now to the second part of your question, in terms of Solomon feeling some sort of appreciation, this is the most inaccurate part of the entire film is the way that Mr. Ford is depicted. He was far 
more appreciated by Solomon than the film shows. And if I can take one quick note here, this is part of why I love Solomon's autobiography. Uh, Not because that we want to say that there was some super kind slave owners in that sort of uh, terrible excuse sort of way that you sometimes hear from people, you know, that, oh, slavery wasn't that bad. No, slavery was awful. It was hideous. But he is... I'm just so impressed with him as a human being. I, I don't. I don't know that I could be sold into slavery and then make such such uh, objective, I guess, assessments of, of people within the system of maintaining some sort of balance. I guess, you know, I, I just and of course, you know, we're, we're speaking in the 21st century, so removed from it. It just baffles me. Solomon is just such a good human being to even be capable of this, in, in my opinion. It sounds like the appreciation that we saw on screen was just a, a small tidbit of what Solomon really did feel towards Mr. Ford. Even not, uh, like you said, not to make it lessen the fact that he still, you know, was a slave owner. And I couldn't imagine any of that situation. But I also think you're saying I couldn't imagine being in that situation and making those sorts of observations. I mean, really, I can't do justice to Solomon's words. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll actually read a, a solid paragraph here where he's describing his feelings towards Mr. Ford. In my edition, this is pages 47 through 48. So to quote Solomon, our master's name was William Ford. In many Northern minds, perhaps, the idea of a man holding his brother man in servitude and the traffic in human flesh may seem altogether incompatible with their conceptions of a moral or religious life. From descriptions of such men as Birch and Freeman, and others herein mentioned, they are led to despise and execrate the whole class of slaveholders indiscriminately. But I was sometimes his slave, and had an opportunity of learning well his character and disposition, and it is but simple justice to him when I say, in my opinion, there never was a more kind, noble, candid Christian man than William Ford. The influences and associations that had always surrounded him, blinded him to the inherent wrong at the bottom of the system of slavery. He never doubted the moral right of one man holding another in subjection. Looking through the same medium with his fathers before him, he saw things in the same light. Brought up under other circumstances and other influences, his notions would undoubtedly have been different. Nevertheless, he was a model master, walking uprightly according to the light of his understanding. And fortunate was the slave who came to his possession. Were all men such as he, slavery would be deprived of more than half its bitterness. So, yeah, you know, it's it's the sort of thing that you could see someone who falsely wants to excuse slavery, uh, quoting out of context. But it's th- that's what Solomon really thought and felt, and it's all again to where I'm so impressed with him, his ability to really have three dimensional characters to to see the the beauty even within an ugly system. I also think it's worth noting that Frederick Douglass, again, in his autobiographies, he, he doesn't have anyone in his life that he felt quite as fondly towards as Solomon. But he often made some notes about how this system, it pulls everyone down. Uh, you know, and this, isn't, this is not to say that Mr. Ford's being pulled down is equated to slavery. Of course not. But that you know, this, this system, like the poverty cycle today or uh, violence, you know, domestic violence, that sort of thing, the way that, that it cyclically continued the, the ills of, of this specific system of slavery. One thing as you were reading that that really struck me as interesting based on what you were talking about before 
is it sounds like Solomon was so not familiar with the intricacies of that system before he was kidnapped, but then just how much this experience, I mean, it's in the title of the movie, you know, 12 years. I mean, he learned so much about that and the way he was able to put the readers or viewers of, of the movie telling his story into his own shoes. That's very telling of the type of person that he was. Yeah. No, he is genuinely one of my my heroes. Yeah. I think it's a shame that we haven't made a bigger point of telling his story traditionally, you know, in uh in, among the heroes and you know legends of of the United States. And I'm I'm sure that's born partly out of when you acknowledge such a an incredible human being who was a slave, you're also bringing up the shame that's felt of slavery. Yeah, you can't have one without the other. Right. But I, I just think Solomon should absolutely be lauded and celebrated. Uh, I'll also add that when uh, we get to scenes with uh, with Tibbetts, it's Mr. Ford who who saves Solomon's life, always goes to bat for him. He stands up for him. Unlike, say, Frederick Douglass's experience where the more level-headed masters in his life have no problem saying, well, yeah, it's really too bad that this guy's being really violent towards you, but I'll lose money, so you need to go back to work. Mr. Ford is always ready to stand up for him. He tells Mr. Tibbetts that if he does not sell Solomon, get him out of his ownership, which that's kind of glossed over in the movie, but Tibbetts has purchased Solomon from Mr. Ford, but on a mortgaging basis. So that's where Mr. Ford still has uh, a vested interest in him and is able to, to protect him. But Mr. Ford tells Tibbetts at one point after some of their fights you are going to either rent him out or you will sell him. You will somehow get him out of your life or I will make sure he is out of your life. You're not going to kill this man. You're not going to keep beating on him. This is not not acceptable. He also is never told, this happens in the movie, Solomon tells Mr. Ford that he's actually a free man and the way that Benedict Cumberbatch does, does he's a phenomenal actor, does a great job with the role. Uh, but you know, Mr. Ford kind of slinks back from this like, oh, I can't hear these things, sort of a, you know, don't don't make my world morally complicated. Ford was never informed of this, so that was just a, a fabrication, um, flat out. So, again, the essence of the film, I think, capturing the depravities of slavery, great. Perhaps in that process, though, Mr. Ford definitely did not get a fair shake. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. 
I want to touch on that one character that you talked about, Tibbetts, because there's a moment in the movie where Tibbetts actually hangs Solomon in retaliation for Solomon standing up to him. And then we see Mr. Ford step in, or actually, I think it's Mr. Ford's overseer first step in. Yeah, I believe his name was Chapin. Yeah, he, he, he steps in, but then he stops the hanging, but then he just leaves Solomon to hang there while he goes to get Mr. Ford. We don't really see exactly how much time passes, but you get the sense that it was daytime and then it starts to get kind of be dusk by the time Mr. Ford gets there. He comes, cuts down the rope, saves Solomon, but then he tells Solomon that Tibbetts is going to, he's going to keep coming. He's not going to stop. So what Mr. Ford ends up doing in the movie is in an attempt to save Solomon's life, he sells Solomon to another plantation. And that is where we, first see Michael Fassbender's character, Edwin Epps. So I have to ask, did Solomon nearly die by hanging? What can I only assume was hours in the, the movie shows? And then was that the reason why Solomon was sold from Mr. Ford to Mr. Epps? So first off, he is left hanging. Now, what isn't readily apparent in the the book, and so I'm I'm inclined to think that this was probably a little bit of liberty in, in the depiction. I do not recall him being tiptoed. Don't get me wrong. Terrible way to spend a day, right? Uh, and, and he mentions uh, mentions that that doesn't even do justice. Solomon is absolutely being tortured in this moment. It's awful. He's left tied up all day long. It is Ford who comes and cuts him down. He doesn't even know himself why he was left in, in that position. He speculates that the overseer... He he says he's not sure why Chapin left him up, which is this guy just lacking in moral courage. That's one of the things that Solomon speculates on, uh, you know, just a, a coward, you know, not willing to undo what Tibbetts had done. Another thought that Solomon entertains is that perhaps Chapin wanted to ensure that Ford saw just what Tibbetts had done to, to Solomon, though, of course, Solomon makes pretty clear, you know, I really would have rather been cut down than been left in this position for an entire day, you know, suffering. But that did happen. And that fight, again, this is another, you know, truncated thing. It really synthesized a number of conflicts that there are at least two conflicts that took place over the course of a month. One of which Solomon really just womps on uh <laughs> on Tibbets. He wins the fight. It's uh I mean, you're just cheering for him as you read his autobiography, right? And he doesn't want to do this, but you know, at some point, this human being, right? He's got to defend himself. He can't, he can't just let Tibbets literally kill him, which is what he feared would happen. So he finally fought back, choked Tibbets until he uh, he passed out, and then Solomon ran for the swamp, fearing for his life, and was greatly really relieved when, from a distance, he saw. Tibbetts regained consciousness and, and walked to the house because at least then he knew he wasn't going to be charged with having killed a white man. So, you know, things kind of die down after that. And, and then we have another fight. And so these are the things that are going on when Mr. Ford, uh, to get to the second part of your question, when Mr. Ford, uh, continuing to protect Solomon, says to Tibbetts, it's clear that you hate him. I'm not going to let you kill this man. I'm not going to let you harm this man. You have got to divest yourself of your, you know, your economic stake. Where he, like we do with houses today, you know, he, he had a mortgage on Solomon. So yes, he gets sold because Tibbetts is is going to kill him if he doesn't sell him. The inaccurate thing 
perhaps as I, as I recall in the film, I don't think it really got into the nitty gritty of this shared interest where Tibbetts is the owner, you know, buying, buying just, just like someone with a house, you know, to return to my mortgage example, right? Like it's sure it's your house, you call it your, your house, but really the bank owns it. And if you fail to make payments, it's the house will get repossessed, right? So that's the, the financial relationship here. So Tibbetts, uh, per the instructions of Mr. Ford, sells off Solomon to Epps. And since Epps, as, as I recall at least, uh, you know, did not need to have a mortgage, the purchase is full and complete. And at this point, Mr. Ford is no longer in the picture. Okay. So just to feed that back and make sure I understand that example there, would was Mr. Tibbetts the bank in that example or was he the- Mr. Ford would have been the bank in that example. Okay. So he would have essentially held the mortgage that then Tibbetts would be paying on. Yeah. So Tibbetts, uh, yeah, Tibbetts would be like the middle-class person looking to buy a house. And I think that's a pretty fair comparison. Most slave owners only owned a, a very few slaves. You know, w- w- when you picture this to go super stereotypical, right? Like this gone with the wind, massive plantations sort of thing. That's a very small minority of the population in, in the South. Under this economic system, we have a terrible spread of wealth. It's highly concentrated in a very small upper class. And you know, then you get to planters who own, uh, the vast majority of slave owners have less than 20 slaves. And then of course you get to, to poor whites who own no slaves. By the time we get to the civil war, as things continue to spread in terms of the inequality uh, continuing to spread, you have a very small minority of really massive plantations compared to those who own just a handful. So Tippetts would be more like a, an up-and-coming type who's trying to acquire slaves, who's trying to build up a, a big plantation. Okay, that, that's a good explanation because I don't feel the movie really explained that side of it very much. It whisked over a lot of that. These two people are fighting against each other, and then all of a sudden, Mr. Ford's out of the picture. Which, you know, to be fair, it, hey, it's a Hollywood film, and they're trying to entertain people as much as tell a story, right? I most people aren't interested in them taking a 40-minute <laughs> aside to explain the intricacies of the Southern economy for the Civil War. So, I mean, I'd have loved it, but yeah. I- <laughs> <laughs> well, that goes back to the historian side. <laughs> exactly. Well, speaking of Mr. Epps, the first that we see Edwin Epps, that's Michael Fassbender's character, he's reading to the slaves from the Christian Bible, which I find very ironic. Now, as Epps explains it, the Bible is saying that if the slaves don't obey their master, then they'll be beaten with a great many lashes. And he lists off 40, 100, 150 lashes. The movie doesn't really say what scripture it is, but I, I jotted it down and looked it up. It's Luke chapter 12, verse 47. And it really is part of the Bible that he's reading from. The quote that he's using in the movie comes from something that Jesus himself was saying as he's talking to his disciples. So I'm curious, was scripture used as a part of the excuse for slavery by people like Epps who, at least in the movie, they claim to be a godly man despite doing these horrible, horrible things? 100% yes. In fact, that specific verse, Solomon does mention it in his autobiography. Now, I don't believe Epps was the one reading from it when he cited it, when Solomon cited it. But the fact that Solomon would point to it, it just tells me that he probably heard it far more than on one occasion in his 12 years living life enslaved. It was a very common thing. You had a lot of preachers who readily turned to the scriptures and used it to excuse slavery. 
Let me also point out that Christianity was used by slave owners as they didn't just look into Christianity and say, look, here's a verse or two where we can justify our owning of slaves, but some even justified the fact that they were converting slaves to Christianity as basically, you know, oh, we are, we're good people. This is, this is how we can feel okay about what we're, what we're doing. And, you know, I, I don't know if it would be that overt. I think Solomon, that, that passage I quoted from his description of Mr. Ford, it, it's so cleanly describes how many slaveholders, they're raised in the system. It never even occurs to them to question it. But this is all part of the society building up the you know reasons why it's okay for them to do it. So as uh, Africans are kidnapped and taken to the Americas, they come with uh, indigenous African religions of, of all different types. And a lot of them are, are also Muslim. Islam had spread south of the Sahara Desert by this point. It, you know, to this day, in the more northern regions of sub-Saharan Africa, you have a very split Muslim Christian population. So, yes, converting uh, recently arrived slaves or you know those those holdouts, if you will, to Christianity. That this is all part of feeling good at night about what they're doing. Wow, wow! And then I'm assuming after converting them to Christianity, it's not like they would set them free. Yeah, exactly. So it's like it doesn't make sense. No, I think Reza Aslan, if you're familiar with him, he's written a number of books: uh, No God But God, a Zealot. He's a rather popular scholar of religion. He makes a point that people often bring to their scriptures who they are, and he's usually discussing Islam and Christianity. But basically, the violent person looks towards the scripture and they find reasons, rationale for being violent. Where you know God not only sanctions but even blesses their violence. Whereas you know the the more kind and gentle soul, they latch on to those sorts of verses because I can either find Jesus saying, "I come," uh, right? I, oh, now I'm spacing the exact wording. I don't remember the exact wording, but it's I I do not come to bring peace, but to bring the sword or something like that. Yeah, it's not, something like that. But of course, I can also find Jesus saying, you know, to for, not only to forgive, but to forgive, se- you know, not just seven times, but seven times seventy, and turn the other cheek, right? So, yeah, that, that's kind of Reza Aslan's take, and that's really resonated with me. I think it's interesting to see that you had those who, who are happy to use the Bible to excuse slavery, while at the same time, you've also got abolitionist preachers who are you know, saying that this is absolutely abhorrent in, in the eyes of God. Yeah, and using the scriptures as their rationale for that as well. Exactly. Now, one thing I'm curious about, anytime that I watch a movie and there's numbers or stats, it's low-hanging fruit for me to try to do a fact check on that. And so when Solomon goes to Mr. Epps's plantation, we get an indication of how much cotton they're supposed to pick. And we find out this from some of the lines in the movie. Patsy is somewhere around 500 pounds of cotton, which cotton is not very heavy. No, it's not. 500 pounds. I can't even imagine that. Solomon picked 160 pounds, and this is a, a in a single day. And then there's a, a white man there named Armsby, and he only picked 64 pounds. But then Epps says that 200 pounds is a normal day's work. And then in another show of racism there, he tells Armsby that now you only pick 64, do better tomorrow. And then he takes Solomon out who did 160 pounds and he whips him because he didn't hit that 200 pound quota. So 
I, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to fathom even how much space 500 pounds or 160 pounds worth of cotton would take. But are those numbers real? They are. 200 pounds of cotton per day was pretty much the expectation. This is, again, where I think the essence of the film is quite fantastic. They're filling in a lot of blanks here. Perfectly fair for a movie to do because Solomon, he can only speak to his experience. And, you know, he's not like he's detailing every single day. Let's also bear in mind, he's trying to recall things that happened years after the fact. It's not like he kept a journal as these events rolled out. So I'm trying to recall, uh, you know, this is part of what happens when you watch the movie and you've read the sources and sometimes... It gets difficult to say for certain. I can't recall off the top of my head that that exact scenario played out with the white hired help, but that's absolutely something that that would have happened. So again, I'm going to caveat that I'm just not remembering it myself. Maybe it is in there in his over 200 page autobiography, and I've just forgotten that one instance, but I don't think that was an unfair play as they're trying to just convey the essence of, of things that really would happen on these plantations. But yeah, 200 pounds and some slave owners were you know, happy to ratchet it up. If somebody did 220 one day, well, now that's their new standard and beat them if they don't continue to meet it. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's awful. You're talking earlier about how it was rare to have those huge plantations. Like, again, going back to Gone with the Wind, you know, in, in that example, I'm still trying to wrap my head around how much space, 200 pounds of cotton and how much land you would have to have for that much for a single person to pick in a single day, doing that every single day, I'm just picturing it must be you know, massive, massive fields that Mr. Epps must have had. Oh, sure. I mean, I don't know the acreage of his plantation off the top of my head, but they're huge. And you know, to, uh, to make sure that we're being perfectly accurate, you know, when I say that it's rare to have these massive gone with the wind style, that type of wealth, I mean, <laughs> I think in our 21st century world where we live in either high density housing, maybe, right? Like we live in a condo, a town home, maybe we live in the suburbs. And so we enjoy an entire, what, quarter acre uh, of land you know, to live on. This is a different standard. So when we talk about a small plantation, you know, we, we're still talking acres and acres of land, uh, which is just, you know, it's, it's, it's small compared to these massive plantations and the number of slaves owned and working are, are under 20 as opposed to plantations where you know there there are hundreds and and often when we're talking about the truly large wealthy southern slaveholders they have multiple plantations so it's not like all those hundreds are working on one single plot of land they may have one piece of property you know in, in this bayou and then 60 miles away they've got a piece of property that's also growing cotton or it could be an entirely different crop so picturing this big uniform rectangular plantation with perfect rows, that won't be quite realistic. That makes a little more sense there. Now, I want to talk about the character that I just mentioned previously, Patsy. Her part of the story in the movie, the whole movie's gut-wrenching and and I can't count the amount of times that I cried throughout it. Right. This is a bad one though. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Patsy is, Mr. Epps is, is just taken with in with her. He rapes her. We only see it once in the movie, but it's implied that that's just a a regular occurrence. And then on the other side, Mrs. Epps, Mr. Epps's wife, clearly knows something's going on. And we don't really know if she knows the extent of it, but she takes all of this out on Patsy. So Patsy is getting it from 
both sides, both from Mr. Epps and, and Mrs. Epps, even so much so that Mrs. Epps won't give Patsy soap to clean herself with. And there's one point in the movie where Patsy says she had to try and go get some soap from a neighboring plantation because she smelled so bad that she was making herself gag. And it was, things just got so bad for her that you can just feel it when she goes to Solomon and she's like, kill me. I want to get out of this living hell. And he, he denies the request saying that he just can't do it. I'm hoping there's not truth to her story, but unfortunately, I have a feeling there is some truth to that. Unfortunately, there's a lot of truth to her story. This is one of the more accurate depictions in the film, you know, where we're not just talking essence, but, you know, really pretty well done. It, you know, I already mentioned the existence of quote unquote uh, fancy girls earlier. And Patsy had the misfortune in this world to be an attractive enslaved woman. And that's just a recipe for, I mean, it's going to depend on the whims and the morality of the slave owner, you know, but it often meant rape. Now, Solomon's record never uses the word rape. I personally think she was. No, in my mind, there's no question. Only as a as a careful historian who never wants to say something that isn't in the record itself, I'll just note that that Solomon didn't say it. But good grief, given the circumstances, given Epps's clear lack of a moral compass, I mean, he and Tibbets, you know, they are night and day from Ford. Which you know, again, I'll, I'll beat up on on this point. This is part of the excellence of Solomon's record is the way he gives us very full characters really showing us those who are capable of maintaining morality despite a system that gives them complete permission to have zero morality and those who readily give into their worst aspects of their personality and indulge in violence and uh, and rape against uh, these human beings that they are able to treat as chattel. Patsy's story is true. Solomon is forced to whip her and he does this did happen in the movie. Yes, uh, he throws down the whip and refuses to do it. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is, um, yeah, these are all things that happened. Wow. I was hoping that wasn't true, but I have a feeling just based on the discussion we've had so far. You know, it, this is another instance that shows how so many good people get stuck in absolutely impossible situations that we have the luxury of not having to worry about as much in the 21st century. I mean, Solomon has no interest in hitting Patsy. He knows if he doesn't do the whipping though, that Epps is going to do the whipping and Epps is going to do it far harder. Right? Yeah. I can't, it's an impossible situation. There's no, there's no winning. You can't win. Going back to the movie while working on Epps's plantation, Solomon meets a man by the name of Bass and he's played by Brad Pitt. Right away, Bass is a different person. We find out that he doesn't believe in slavery. He even confronts Epps with this saying that you know, even though the law says that a white man can own a black man, the law lies. And he tells Epps that in the eyes of God, there's no difference, kind of what we alluded to before, where it sounds like he's using scripture as 
a reason for why this is an evil thing. Uh, they're, they're both human, and there's going to come a time when the law will change. That's w- the way that Bass kind of phrases that to Epps. Of course, in the movie, it doesn't change Epps' mind. But Solomon, overhearing this, it gives him the confidence to confide in Bass, and he tells him the true story. He says, my name isn't Platt, which is what everybody had called him. My name is Solomon Northup, and I'm a free man from New York. And he asks Bass to write a letter to his friends up in the North on his behalf. The movie doesn't do a real deep dive into who Bass is, but he seems to play a pretty major role in Solomon's story, even if it is a small role in the movie, but it's a major role, assuming that that actually happened in the overall story for Solomon. What do we know about who he was and the parts that we saw in the movie from a historical perspective? So again, broad strokes here, pretty good. Bass is a Canadian, middle-aged. I think something that isn't brought up enough in the film, you know, for my historical liking, again, congratulations to the filmmakers, hard, hard thing to do. But being an abolitionist, which is what Bass is, that's crazy talk at this point in history. You know, we're in the 1850s, so we're even coming up to the Civil War. In my experience in the classroom and you know, other conversations, I've come to have the impression that Americans seem to think that it was the anti-slavery North versus the pro-slavery South and the Civil War. And that just gives way too much credit to most Northerners, to be really honest. You had anti-slavery people in the North, but even anti-slavery was to be distinguished from someone who was an actual abolitionist. Being anti-slavery meant that you didn't like it, but and you're probably opposed to it spreading to new U.S. territories, which is a major fight happening in, in the United States in the 1850s, all part of what builds up to the Civil War. But actually being an abolitionist who says, not only do we not want slavery to expand, we want to see slavery eradicated. We want that system wiped out even where it exists. Those people are considered full-on radicals, and they're quite rare. So Bass is a truly fascinating character. And once again, the type of person who, you know, these people exist in real life. We often use these large blanket, you know, descriptions of say Democrats, Republicans, or, you know, people in the South, people in the, it, 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 we often lose sight that there are people who disagree with the majority opinion within each of these sorts of religious, political country, you know, camps, whatever it might be. So the idea that you get this Canadian abolitionist working in the South, it's, you know, only real life can be stranger than fiction like this. You know, he's absolutely out of place. And yet here we are. So it takes weeks, though, weeks of him working on Epps's land and talking with Epps and talking with Epps in a way that only a, a white man can, right? He talks to Epps as his equal. He's this skilled worker who's been, been brought here to work. And he's able to, to do this with Solomon. Solomon's a great carpenter. And as they work together, Solomon has overheard Bass's diatribes against slavery. He slowly thinks, you know what? I'm ready to do this. I'm going to risk my life and tell him the truth. And he eases into it even by saying that I've actually been to Canada. And Bass kind of goes, oh yeah, sure you have. But then, then Solomon starts describing places in Canada and New York. And you know, 
again, this is the 19th century, right? There's no Google Maps. You know, there's, you, you, you can't know these sorts of things about these regions without having been there. And that's when Bass kind of pauses and goes, whoa, hold up. This is serious. You're not kidding. And so then, you know, he tells him, yeah, he tells him the whole deal. And Bass puts himself at great risk in helping. He gets a letter off. They continue to work together for weeks. They don't know whether or not the letter gets there, right? You know, this isn't an email that says sent. It's not a text message. There's no tracking number on the letter that... Yep. So they don't even know, is it going to get there when it gets there? It's been over a decade. Does Solomon even know, sure, there's got to be some people in the town that still know him, but what what if the the flu has come through and and killed you know the very people to whom he's writing and that sort of a thing? So it does get there. And, and then, you know, the scene that we see in the movie, I think is really quite well done. Solomon's friend, no relation, uh, at least that, that I recall, but coincidentally, same last name. This is Henry Northup. He shows up with his lawyer, you know, they've gotten the letter and they move quickly once they get there, because of course they're sure that, well, Epps is not going to just roll over and do the right thing, if you will, you know? Right. He's already proven that. Exactly. So they wait for the weekend to end. It's 12.01 on a Monday morning. So literally one minute past midnight when they go and see a judge, get the judge to sign off on a warrant saying, okay, yeah, there's a free citizen of New York who's been kidnapped and taken here, then absolutely this New York lawyer has the right to extract him back to his home state. So they get that squared away. They head over to the plantation where Solomon's working. And then that scene that you see, where the sheriff gets out, asks where asks where Platt is, because of course that's the name he's known by, right? And he points to Henry Northup and asks Solomon, you know, do you know this guy? And it does actually take a minute longer to play out than you'd expect at first blush. But let's remember they haven't seen each other in over a decade. And here's Solomon's dream suddenly coming true out of the blue. He doesn't get a text, you know, hey, I'm on my way. There's no ETA sent by Google Maps, you know, Henry on route. So he stares out and kind of blinks for a minute. And then finally he says, Henry B. Northup, thank God, thank God. And then the sheriff asks a few more uh, questions, you know, to really kind of ensure the identity. Because, of course, human beings enslaved are very expensive. So he's got to ensure that this is really the case. And it's only just a, a few more questions. And finally, yeah, it's sorted out. And so then Epps is told of, <laughs> of what's just happened. And Solomon is finally restored to freedom. And they then head up to uh, Washington, D.C., where they try to prosecute the, um, you know, the, the scoundrels involved in this whole nightmare. And from there, they, they head back to New York. I'm curious because in the movie, I think it was Armsby, the other uh, person that was uh, the the white man who only like picked 64 pounds of, of cotton or something. Solomon initially tried to get his help to write a letter. And so that was one of the reasons why, at least according to the movie, he was so hesitant to go to Bass later on because when he went to Armsby, Armsby then talked to Mr. Epps and brought it to his attention. Do we know if... He had tried, if he had explained his story to anybody before Bass, or was he the first one? Bass is the first one he's really laid this out there with. He did get a sailor when he was first being transported 
down to Louisiana. On the way, there was a sailor that he was able to get the story to. So, you know, this is the very beginning of this 12 years ago. And this sailor was willing to write a letter and did so. However, it was almost maybe offering a little bit of closure to his family sort of a thing at best, because the sailor and Solomon, they don't know where he's headed. They just know he's being transported south. So now he's a needle in a haystack. Sure, the family can you know, at least know that Solomon didn't leave them, but they don't even know what state he's in. How, how do you even begin to look? That was the one at least uh, su- successful letter. He is, forgive me, I... Um, you know, as I said earlier, sometimes in watching the movie and, and read through the sources, <laughs> I'm trying to recall. Uh, and, and if I'm mistaken on that, I, I do apologize. I don't recall him approaching Armsby, um, but it has been drilled into his mind at, at this point. He knows not to say he's from the North. He knows not to mention that he's literate. It's illegal to teach a slave how to read and write. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. It's I, by the time we know when the Civil War ends, you have plenty of very intelligent and capable black Americans that don't know how to read and write it, because of course, education is one of the great ways to equip someone with the power to fight for themselves. So you can see where slave systems would make laws that prohibited slaves from reading and writing. I hadn't thought about it that way, but yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you control the information. One thing that stood out to me throughout the entire movie was there's no sense of a timeline to it. We we get that uh, bit in the very beginning that tells us the date, but then after that, there's no years, there's no dates or anything like that that are given, which I think when I was watching this, it really helped add to this story. Sometimes I'm like, oh man, you know, how much time is actually passing here? But in that way, just putting yourself in, in his shoes you're not going to have a, a phone that, that gives you the time all right. So it helps add to the story that you're as lost as he is in some way, in that way of you know not really knowing how much time actually has passed. I guess you could keep track of day and night cycles, but I mean, you can only keep track of that manually for so long, right? Before you start to lose track of things. But I also know from looking back at history and having done this podcast for a while that one of the key things that movies like to do a lot of times is to change the timeline in order to shift things around. Again, we're trying to fit 12 years into an hour. Two hours. <laughs> right. So there's going to be timeline shifting in that way. But now that we have a better idea of the overall story and some of the things that actually happened, of course, title of the movie, title of the book, we know that the story was roughly 12 years. Can you give us kind of a, a bullet point of the events that we see in the movie and where in that 12 years it took place? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty sketch because he doesn't know <laughs> often, but the broad strokes here uh, is April 1841 when he gets to Washington, D.C. The next month, he's on his way down to New Orleans and he sneaks off that letter that I just mentioned a moment ago, you know, through, through a sailor. By winter of 1842, that's when Tibbets comes into the picture. And, you know, again, we already went through that complicated scenario. So that's where he's in this, you know, mortgaged out situation. And then April of 1843 is when he is purchased by Epps. And this is where things really just become broad because... 
he's owned by Epps for you know the next 10 years. And in fact, the autobiography, at least the edition I have it, in the way the pagiation is worked out, it's a little over 200 pages. The first 50 or so are just his capture. You know, it, It's where he's got a lot of the details and there's a lot of things happening. I, I think we fall into a little bit of, not to downplay the uh, severity and the the suffering of of slavery, um, but by the time we're to Epps, he's into the monotony of it as well. So there's just less details, I guess you could say. Days run together, you just lose track of time. Yes, precisely. So you don't have these big markers in your mind, these shifts where whoa, I'm being sent to an entirely different, you know, plantation. I'm doing a very different job. Not that his jobs didn't change, as you know, is is even shown in the movie where he's. You know, moving things down rivers at one point, and you know, sometimes he's a carpenter, sometimes he's in the field. But yeah, he that's that's where we have Epps, and then of course January of eighteen fifty three is when he regains his freedom. Now, at the very end of the movie, as is very often the case, there's some text on the screen that explains what happens to Solomon after being kidnapped and sold into slavery. And according to the movie, Solomon brought the men responsible for his kidnap to trial. I already mentioned that a little bit briefly. But it also says that he was unable to testify because testifying against whites in Washington, D.C. was illegal. And so neither Mr. Hamilton or Mr. Brown were prosecuted. Basically, they just got away with their crimes. Absolutely did. Really? Was Washington, D.C., during... Civil War, that was a, a Northern or Union area, right? Correct. Does that go back to what you were talking about earlier, where it's not necessarily these divided lines of, you know, there's no racism in the North and in the South, it's slavery? It does get back to that. So when the Civil War even happens, the border states, which are states where there's slavery, they don't break off. Slavery basically goes in a gradation from the North where there is, I'm actually going to say almost no slavery. The northern states, something that's often forgotten by people, did, in fact, permit slavery before the American Revolution. And shortly after, their largely non-slave-based economies, they just didn't have the right climate for it. It it made no sense. You can't have a, a massive plantation in New England. So the idea of owning a bunch of slaves and getting really rich off of it just didn't fly. So you didn't have a robust usage of slavery. As such, they were more inclined to end it, you know, as as they're ushering in this new nation based upon the idea that all men are created equal, liberty, you know, all these beautiful things that we think of when we think of the United States or we idealize about our nation. The North was ready to end slavery. So they did gradual emancipation. What they said in most states, and this was done on a state-by-state basis, they usually said, okay, anyone born into slavery after X year, 1800, 1805, et cetera will only be enslaved until they turn 25 or 23 or whatever. And then they're free and any children they have are born free. And so this set up those who did own slaves in the North to anticipate the shift that was coming to prepare their houses economically, if you will. So you actually had just a very few, I'm talking over 90 years old slaves in some of the Northern states. Uh, I mean, I think the figures under 100 people even. But some some souls, you know, who were born in the 1790s or you know earlier, uh, still still enslaved. And then you get into the borders. We start to get into states that have the type of climate where slavery can make some money. 
and they rely less on slavery and they tended to be more inclined to stick with the union. Virginia was on the border with this in a very literal sense. And that's where the counties that now you know, broke off and, and became the state of West Virginia did so because they were interested in leaving the union. They didn't really use slavery as much, whereas other parts of the state were ready to go with the Confederacy. And Virginia was one of the, the last to, to jump on the Confederate bandwagon. And then you get into the Deep South. So sorry if that's more explanation than you wanted there. But uh, what I'm trying to situate is that Washington, D.C. had slavery, had a robust slave, slave auctions. And many like Abraham Lincoln, when he was uh, a congressman representing Illinois, he even tried to pass a bill that would have ended slavery in D.C., didn't happen. Couldn't make it happen. Didn't happen until he became president, in fact. So yeah, there's a big slave market in DC and slavery still exists there. Even when the civil war breaks out, it's, you know, Kentucky is this border state that never officially goes really one way or the other. And that's part of the awkwardness that Abraham Lincoln has during the civil war. When he gets to the emancipation proclamation, he's trying to keep his border states from joining the CSA, which is what's going to happen if he comes down too harshly on slavery. Uh, he's trying to keep his, the Democrats happy who don't want to end slavery. They just want to preserve the union. But then he's also got abolitionists who are saying, okay, we're already c- going to war over, sure, we could say states' rights, but really slavery is the state right that we're fighting over here. Let's end slavery. And all those tensions are boiling at the same time. It really helps paint another aspect of the picture of why Solomon's kidnappers would have gone that extra step to provide him the papers going to Washington, D.C., just as that extra layer of helping him feel safe and why those papers were a necessary part of that. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit more about Solomon there at the very end, talking about after he wrote his book, which uh, published in 1853, to tell his story, then It says that he lectured on slavery and even helped free some slaves in the Underground Railroad. And then we find out at the very end that the date, location, and circumstances of Solomon's death are unknown. Is that true? Yeah, he just kind of disappears from history. We look at him now and think, wow, what an amazing American. What a hero. As I said earlier in this very interview, right? I mean... I will never forget the first time I read 12 Years a Slave. I was moved to tears multiple times. Uh, it really opened my eyes to, this was earlier on in my my education. I didn't know nearly as much about the American slave system before the Civil War uh, when, when I read it. But it's not like Americans at the time saw this great hero. In fact, Northerners, this is really fascinating. At the end of his autobiography, he actually says, you know, some people in the North, they don't believe my story. They think this is insane. There's no way that Americans are this cruel to their fellow Americans who are enslaved, which not that they would think of it that way, right? More more likely, they would just think of it as their slaves, as, as a lesser class. So Northerners can't even wrap their heads often, even those who aren't abolitionists. Right? They might not even be anti-slavery. Maybe they just don't care one way or the other. But part of why they don't care is they just cannot fathom that the cruelties described in his autobiography are real. And people do this. These are contemporaries. They don't believe him. And uh, Solomon even says, you know, if anything, I might have downplayed some of the cruelty that exists within the slave system, partly because I realize people can't quite wrap their heads around it. So he's not the hero that we see him as today at the time. And he is able to just disappear from the pages of history. In a weird way, 
this is no knock on Uncle Tom's Cabin, but Harriet Beecher Stowe, her book comes out, I believe, just after. It's, it's about the same time as Solomon's book and is popular and well-read as Solomon's book is, you know, his actual autobiography, her book, which is kind of a fiction. I mean, it's a composite. It's a fictional story, but it's based on the experiences of a number of slaves, you know, stitched together uh, to, into one succinct flowing narrative. But Harriet's book eclipses Solomon's. So he kind of drops out of the picture. That's part of how he ended up getting buried. And partly think, thanks to the film. You know, we've, we've certainly talked about some of the weaknesses of the film. And again, I'll, I'll say Mr. Ford is the one who drew the, the short straw. But God bless the filmmakers for getting uh, Solomon's story in front of Americans to, you know, to, to even think through these things and, and grappling with the challenges of bringing it to the screen. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time to chat about 12 Years a Slave. My pleasure. That leads right into your podcast where I know you told Solomon's story. And I, I love, when I was listening to your podcast, I love that it's a very different historical podcast. It's not just historical facts, but you do a great job of telling the stories of history. Can you share a little bit of information about your podcast and where someone listening can subscribe? Absolutely. Uh, so history that doesn't suck. And of course, it's all the usual places that you'll find a podcast, you know, iTunes, Spotify, and all that jazz. Website is history that doesn't suck.com. And we're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, you know, the works. Basically, I feel strongly that as great as we are doing today as professional historians, that telling accurate history, I think we have sometimes let the stories actually slip out and we forget that. That's what draws people in. We are a species that love story. So while I keep the rigor, I mean, the research is, <laughs> it's like I'm writing a research paper, but I make sure that I wrap all the, the things that, you know, you might not find as fun to memorize, like tax policy, you know, during the revolution, I wrap it up with the personal narrative, like Patrick Henry in that situation, getting himself into hot water over the Stamp Act. So you can get invested in Patrick and, you know, you accidentally pick up the facts on what the Stamp Act did at the same time. You accidentally learn about taxes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So thank you. It's, it's been fun to do. It's been great to see it growing. And this is my passion, you know, making, making history fun, accessible, but keeping it rigorous all at once. At least that's what I aim for. Thanks again so much for your time. My pleasure. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. I'd like to thank Greg Jackson for his time and expertise in helping us separate fact from fiction in the movie 12 Years a Slave. If you want to learn more incredible stories from history, including a deeper dive into Solomon Northup's story, go subscribe to Greg's podcast called History That Doesn't Suck. And of course, if you're driving or unable to head there right now, I'll make sure to add a link to Greg's podcast in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Solomon was kidnapped from New York and taken to Louisiana, where he was sold as a slave. Number two, the character of Patsy in the movie was based on very real events. Number three, Bass helped Solomon gain his freedom by writing a letter to Solomon's friends in the North. Did you find out which one is a lie? 
Let's start with number three. Bass helps Solomon gain his freedom by writing a letter to Solomon's friends in the north. That is true. As Greg explained, the character of Bass in the movie was based on a real person from Canada who was a strong abolitionist. When he found out Solomon was describing places in Canada and New York that only someone who had visited those places could know about, Bass started to believe Solomon's story. And on the other side, Solomon started to believe that he could trust Bass because he overheard Bass talking to Mr. Epps so much about how wrong slavery was. Bass then helped Solomon write a letter to his friends back in the north to see if they could help. And that was the beginning of the end of Solomon's horrible years as a slave. That brings us to number one. Solomon was kidnapped from New York and taken to Louisiana where he was sold as a slave. That is, well, that's the lie. Even though Solomon was from New York, he traveled to Washington, D.C. with the two men who orchestrated his kidnapping. So it was from D.C. that Solomon was kidnapped and sold to slave owners in Louisiana. That means number two is also true. The character of Patsy in the movie was based on very real events. Unfortunately, the horrific story that we saw on screen with Patsy, that happened. And it was a painful reminder of just how, how terrible the situations were that Solomon and all those sold into slavery faced. That just about wraps up our time today. But before we go, the last thing I like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating this episode. I know that is not something that most podcasts do, and that's exactly why I'm sharing this information. If there's one thing that is surprising to most people who are new to podcasting, beginning podcasters, or even if you've never created a podcast before, when I tell somebody how much time and effort it takes to create a single episode, that is really what surprises them the most. So I figure maybe if you find out more about how much time, money, and effort it takes to create a podcast like this one, then maybe you'll start to appreciate all of the podcasts that you listen to for free just a little bit more. With that said, today's episode took a total of 29 hours to create and cost $34.28 in out-of-pocket expenses. As I always do, I want to make it clear that time and cost is only my time for this one episode. So that does not include the countless hours of my guest time researching the subject matter that we talked about. And it doesn't include any of my ongoing costs. For example, the monthly podcast hosting cost, just hosting the podcast itself or hosting the website based on a true story podcast.com that has its own cost for the domain name for the website hosting all of any of the the plugins that I've had to purchase or the software that I've had to purchase the hardware that I purchase all of that that is outside the cost of this one episode those are more overall costs and I don't include those in the out-of-pocket expenses for this one single episode if you enjoyed today's episode, I really hope that you'll consider helping to support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And as a bonus, as a way of saying thank you for your support, you will get access to hours of exclusive content on the producer's feed. We've got over 40 minisodes that look at the way completely fictional movies use history as a way of making their stories seem more realistic. One of the examples that I like to use is the Pirates of the Caribbean and how 
there really were pirates, of course, and talk about how the, those movies, some of those movies use real things in history, like the pirate code. That's something that we see in the movie, and that was actually a real thing for some of the pirates back then, and we talk about that on some of those mini-sodes. There's hours and hours of content available immediately and all exclusive to you as a way of saying thank you for helping to keep the lights on here at Based on a True Story. And that time and effort that it takes to create this episode, well, that has to come from somewhere. And like you, I have bills and have to keep the lights on here to keep the show going. Once again, you can find out how to support the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. In the meantime, if you'd like to add to the story, hop on to the Based on a True Story Facebook group, or you can reach out to me directly on Twitter, where I'm at Dan Lefebvre. That's D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. And if social media isn't your thing, you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at dan at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. And I'll chat with you again really soon.